Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 2, chapters 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Amen. That was a husband and wife duo, Sean and Nujung. Thank you for that. I'd like to take a moment to welcome a brother I just met. I uh, learned that he was uh, Pyeongho's younger brother, Pyeong-il, who I hear is just as good, if not better, in basketball. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but uh, Pyeong-il, where are you sitting? In the front? Let's give uh, Pyeong-il a warm welcome. Right. All of Paul's friends, uh, I think one of the requirements is they have to play basketball or something, you know. Uh, all right. So um, we're starting a new sermon series today. Uh, it's called The Doctrines of Grace, also known as TULIP. Right? TULIP's an acronym to help summarize these doctrines. And so uh, through this series, I'll basically be presenting what's understood to be the Reformed view of salvation, okay? The Reformed view, and that they may sound boring to you. Um, and, you know, we, we just came off a, sort of a narrative, you know, a very interesting narrative in Ruth. And I just want to give you a heads up that this series is going to be a little different, all right? It's going to feel different. It's a doctrinal series, right? So you have to kind of use your your brain muscles a little bit more, right? Um, and I'll try to keep it, you know, engaging, but um, just sometimes, hey, sometimes you gotta focus on some theology and doctrine more, okay? Uh, so, you know, the last time I preached on this uh, topic, it was in 2015, so it's been a while, okay? And in 2018, actually, we offered a uh, summer seminar series for our college and young adults, uh, but, you know, as you know, our, our ministry looks very different now with many new members, and so I wanted to take the next few weeks to, to cover this topic once more so that we can uh, be clear about what we believe as we continue to journey on together as a church community, okay? That's, that's my intent, and uh, that's where I'm coming from. Now, uh, some of you may end up rejecting at least part of what's going to be presented. That's okay, you know. Uh, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. I just hope that you can agree on the most important things, okay? I at least want you to know uh, what your church believes, okay? What your denomination holds to, what your pastors embrace. Uh, and, you know, truth be told, it, it took me... Uh, a while, I, I was exposed to this kind of teaching when I was a college student, but you know, it was hard for me to embrace this as a college student because I, I came out of a more of a Methodist background and they didn't 
agree with this stuff. And so I struggled with it for a good two to three years. Um, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if you kind of went through that same experience as well, where, you know, you hear this, but you're not sure of it, and it takes you a good, you know, at least a year or two, maybe, maybe three or four, like myself, to really fully embrace it and actually uh, love it, okay? And at this point, I mean, I, I, I love these doctrines, okay? These doctrines are what gets me excited. And so I hope you can experience that same joy in, in God's truth. And, you know, there may be a small number of you who actually sit through this series and feel like, you know, what you're about to hear is just really foreign, strange, and maybe, you know, because of your training or background, your church background, you know, it even sounds heretical. It may sound heretical to you. I don't know. Uh, Maybe you're a part of a church who never chose to teach it, or maybe they were just you know, against it, actually. Um, But let me assure you uh, that there actually is nothing heretical about what I'm about to share with you. In fact, this, these doctrines are very standard. They're very basic reform doctrines that have been around for a long, long time. So it's, it's not some new, strange teaching that I'm sort of manufacturing on my own, okay? I'm not a false prophet. I, I basically spit out what's been taught throughout the centuries that God has revealed to the church or get to his people. And this, this has standed the test of time and it's been tested against scripture time and time again. Uh, I do remember uh, sharing as, as a college kid, because I, I got so excited because I, wow, wow, can you believe this stuff? Like I, I was really energetic about this and I, I would share Tulip, right, with Anyone I encountered, my peers, you know, uh, uh, you know, even even sisters on campus who really at the time had no interest. I was like, "Did you hear about? Have you ever heard about Tulip?" <laughs> Let me share with you. Uh, and so this one sister, uh, she was a friend at the time. Uh, she went home, baffled, and she told her mom, and uh, her mom got concerned. And so because you know she may have thought that I was sort of sort of a cult leader or something, you know, and and she asked her pastor if this was in fact biblical teaching, and her pastor told her that it's actually something that should be taught more in churches, including his own church, but it isn't. And you know what? This is the time we're living in where, where sound doctrine and, and hard truths are often avoided in fear that it'll offend people or, or turn people off. Um, so that's sort of not, not the direction we wanna go, okay? Um, so what, what does TULIP stand for, and where does it come from? I, I wanted to start with that question. Uh, so let me, let me just offer, I know it's gonna be a little bit hard for some of you to follow, but again, use your brain muscles a bit this morning. I wanna offer just a brief history of how the, these doctrines developed, okay? There was a guy, uh, his, let me date him, he's 1560 to 1609, a guy uh, named Jacob Arminius, uh, who was this, became this prominent figure who strongly objected uh, against the, the teaching of the day, which was, you know, had a, the, the church that at the time, uh, were in his context, it had a robust understanding of God's sovereign grace. And it was uh, very influenced by reformers such as John Calvin. And he, he was just strongly opposed 
to that kind of teaching. And his followers were later named Arminians, okay? And uh, his followers, the Arminians, they ended up expanding uh, the teaching of Arminius, Jacob Arminius. And they formulated their own set of doctrines called the five points of Arminianism, okay? And so this was present, presented to the Dutch parliament in the form of like an objection as a remonstrant, uh, remonstrance. And so the church had to res respond. And so in 1618, at the important gathering called the Synod of Dort, uh, the five points of Arminianism were dealt with and they were deemed heretical at the time. And, and uh, there was a sort of a, I guess, a counterpoint, right? five counterpoints that were made. And so these five counterpoints were called the five points of Calvinism. And so let me just uh, show you a, a brief summary. Please work. Don't fail me now. Can you flip to the next slide for me? Okay, whenever something doesn't work, oh, there we go. Whenever something doesn't work, I, I blame Pastor Xiong, but uh, okay, it works now. So the five points of Arminianism on, on the left column, I'm not gonna hash out everything now, but just kind of understand those are the general ideas, okay? So we're, today we're gonna cover the first point. Uh, they believe that the will is depraved because of course if you're a Christian, you, you can't deny that. I mean, that's straight Bible teaching. But, but however, there's a qualification there. The, the will is not, our human will is not completely enslaved by sin, right? There is a, you know, a, a sort of a, a freedom that we've been given to overcome our sinful nature. And so I'll elaborate a little bit more on that. And then and the counterpoint is a five point of Calvin at the first point. No, you're wrong, Jacob Arminius. You're wrong, Arminians. Uh, in fact, we are totally depraved. So, some people like to use the term total inability. And so that, that's today's topic, okay? You still awake? Good. Uh, let's see, what do I have next? I forget the order. Okay, so we'll be covering Tulip. By the way, for those of you who are a little slow, we're not awake yet. Uh, the first letter of each point, right, is the T-U-L-I-P. That, that's where we get Tulip, okay? So I want, by the end of the series, I want Tulip to be your favorite flower, right? Your favorite personal flower. It is mine. So I want, I want to share the joy with you. Uh, and so we have Tulip, but I'm going to cover Tulip in the order in which we actually experience them, generally speaking, okay? Now, your experience may be slightly different, but this is how most people experience it. And I, I'm borrowing this order from John Piper, one of my spiritual mentors. I, I kind of, I'm indebted to him because when, when I was confused, I, I listened to his talks and read his articles on sovereign grace and, and doctrine of grace and tulip. And I was like, yeah, this, this is actually, this, this, this has to be true. And that, that kind of opened up a, a whole new world for me in terms of Bible study and theology, okay? So T, uh, just let me, let me walk you through this and hopefully this will resonate, okay? We are first confronted by the reality of our own sin, right? Our depravity. I hope you, you've experienced that yourself. Like you've, you've been sort of exposed to the truth of your own fallenness, right? That yes, you're not just a sinner, but you're a deeply sinful, and there is really no hope apart from God's grace. And then I, uh, then we experience an inward change where we're no longer wanting to resist God's call to repent and believe, okay? L, limited atonement, I, by the way, irresistible grace. 
L is limited atonement. As a result of God's irresistible grace, we're able to surrender our lives to the Lord and believe in his atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. Um, you, unconditional election, then as we study God's word in more depth, we learn that the reason why anyone is able to choose God is because God chose them first, okay? And then P, perseverance of the saints. Finally, we experience the grace of God that sustains our faith and our lives until the very end, right? Uh, he's not just the author of our faith, but uh, I think as our brother prayed, he is a perfecter of our faith, okay? Uh, and then we have, okay, I know this, this part's gonna be a little bit heady, perhaps, but I do wanna have you at least understand that there is a real difference between uh, the way some people understand the human will versus how we, uh, we understand the human will, okay, our reform tradition, okay? So here, here's the very common Armenian understanding of the human will. And there's some variation of this, but, you know, basically this is the foundation, okay? So please bear with me as I read this. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man was not, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. And so, you know, the fall sort of damaged us, but we're kind of limping, okay? We're not completely dead, we're sort of injured. Okay? Each sinner possesses a free will and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it, right? Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to a sinful nature. That's one of the key points. The lost sinner needs a spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be born again or regenerated by the Spirit before he can believe, for faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. That is something God cannot touch. That is completely your own you know, act of will. Faith, that's what their view is, okay? I'm not saying I agree with this. It is man's contribution to salvation. Is that your view of your salvation and, and faith and your your conception of human free will? I hope not, okay? Uh, and then you have what we believe in, the Calvinistic understanding of the human free will, and it basically goes like this. Because of the fall, man is unable to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is not just injured, he's dead, blind, deaf to the things of God. He, his will is not free in the sense that it, his, he's, he's actually enslaved, he's in bondage to a sinful nature, therefore he will not and he cannot choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. He doesn't just need help. <laughs> he doesn't just need help. He needs a new life. He needs a new heart. He needs to be regenerated, reborn, by which the Spirit makes a sinner alive and gives him a new nature, you see. That's, that's, that's a big difference. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift so faith is not something that God cannot touch that's your own. Faith is actually a gift that God grants to you, you undeserved sinner, right? Or we undeserved sinners. It is God's gift to us, not the sinner's gift to God. Okay, so, you, so I hope you see the difference. Sometimes it's helpful to kind of see these contrasts, right? Uh, let, me, let me read you one more thing. It's a quote by... Uh, a very old theologian named Lorraine Bettner. 
Uh, I read one of his books on the doctrine of predestination. <laughs> the book is actually titled The Doctrine of Predestination, one of the most exciting books out there, okay? Really, really. <laughs> it, uh, there's a, a helpful paragraph or two in that book. In matters pertaining to salvation, the unregenerate man, in other words, the man who's not born again, the person who's not born again, is not at liberty to choose between good and evil, but only to choose between greater and lesser evil, which is not properly free. In other words, your, your, your will is in bondage to sin. You're a slave to sin. All you can do is sin. As a bird with a broken wing is free to fly, but not able, so the natural man is free to come to God, but not able. How can he repent of his sin when he loves it so much? This is the inability of the will under which man labors. And to assume that because man has the ability to love, has the ability, or therefore has the ability to love God, is about as wise as to assume that since water has the ability to flow, it therefore has the ability to flow uphill. I thought that was sort of a helpful way to look at it, right? Who are some other people uh, that embrace this doctrine? You know, I just, I don't want to give the impression that it's just, you know, us or our church, that we're weird. Uh, it's not the case, okay? Uh, let, me, let me throw out a few names. Uh, some, some may sound very familiar, okay? Uh, one of the great reformers, Martin Luther, not King Jr., not the black activist, but the great German reformer during the Reformation era, a uh, contemporary of John Calvin, right? They both embraced these doctrines. And then moving uh, more toward our day, uh, there was John Owen, uh, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield. I hope all those names are familiar. J.I. Packer, uh, who, uh, who authored the classic book, Knowing God, one of my also spiritual heroes, J.I. Packer. There's John MacArthur, who many of you probably know. He's pastors in California. Uh, John Piper, of course, Wayne Grudem, who wrote the Systematic Theology book, accessible to lay people. R.C. Sproul, another one of my great heroes. Tim Keller, who recently passed away. Uh, some of you are probably big fans of Francis Chan because of his sort of, you know, charisma. Uh, he's a, you know, a advocate of these doctrines. David Platt, who serves at McLean Bible Church in the area, okay? Uh, some of you may know Doug Wilson, who became more popular during the COVID years. He's a you know, uh, a believer in these doctrines. And any church or denomination with Reformed or Presbyterian in it is supposed to teach these things, okay? Not just our church. So KCPC, CCPC, ODPC, you know, SPC, all those churches are, are supposed to be faithfully teaching these doctrines, all right? So it's not just us again. We're not the weird ones. This is like common standard Reformed doctrine, okay? But, you know, that, you know, we don't, we don't believe this because others believe it, right? We, we believe these things because we believe that Jesus and the Apostle Paul and all the other biblical authors believe them as well. And so let's examine the Bible to see what it actually says about our fallen condition, right? So I want to ultimately convince you through Scripture that these things are true, not, not because John Piper said it was true, right? Uh, so what does the Bible teach about our fallen condition, so first thing, uh, first thing it teaches, apart from God's grace, everything we do is sin. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not from faith 
is sin. Let that sink in. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Right? Everything that is not done in faith is, is wickedness, okay? it's evil. <laughs> Another way to look at it is this, which may be, might be more thought-provoking. Everything an unbeliever does, right? even the nicest unbeliever you know, everything an unbeliever does is ultimately sin. Right? Can you swallow that? Right? Can you agree with that? And I, I, I know that some, some of you may be objecting inside, thinking, well, how can it be so? You know, because not, not everyone's actually bad. You know, even unbelievers do some good things, as you even said, Pastor Paul, a few weeks ago, talking about common grace. Right? Even unbelievers can be nice and do good things. Of course they can. Of course they can. We're not talking about comparing, you know, people with other people, though. Relatively speaking, yes, other people can, be, can do, you know, things that are better than us or, you know, nicer than us, but... We're talking here about, in light of God's righteous standards, can people be truly good? The way God defines righteousness or goodness, can, God, can, can people measure up to his standards? See, seeing our depravity in relation to God and not man is the key to understanding these passages. I want you to realize that, biblically speaking, if your good work does not flow from a heart that is reliant upon God's grace, then that is, by God's definition, a depraved act because you're in rebellion against God. You're still rejecting him in the process. You're not acknowledging or honoring him as God. So what is that? Right? That's an act that does not please God. It's a sinful act. So you, you can be very religious, right? You can be very nice, you can be very good, very upright, very law-abiding, just like the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. You can be very generous with your money, like Bill Gates is, or these other rich people in our day. But if you do so, right, with, with these sort of like, I don't know, these personal reasons, maybe you want to bolster your image, maybe you want a tax break, <laughs> maybe, maybe you want to feel good about yourself in some way, or maybe you just, it's out of, out of a simple desire to help, you, you have a, a, a heart to want to help others, even if that's the case, if it's not done in faith in God, then by God's definition, your act is an act of sin. Right? Let me also offer one, one clarification regarding the doctrine of total depravity, okay? Because I think this, this will help you a lot as well. Um, total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be. Because truth is, we could all be far worse than we are now in terms of the kind of evil that we commit and perform on a day-to-day -day basis. But do you know why we're not as evil as we could be? What's the proper answer? It's because, of course, of the grace of God that restrains us from committing such evil. That's the only reason, brothers and sisters, it's not you. It's not because you are inherently good or nice. It's because of God's grace restraining you from becoming like the next Hitler. If God removed his grace from you, you would be very quickly spiraling down more and more into wickedness, and your heart would become just as calloused as the worst kind of criminal that the world has known, you know? But even Hitler, like Hitler was, I think all of us would agree, he was an evil guy. But even Hitler, he wasn't as bad as he could 
be because he, you know, I'm sure he loved his mom, right? I'm sure, I'm sure he had people in his life that, that, that he treated well. Yeah. Hitler, even he had this greater potential for evil. But God's common grace restrained him as well. Okay. And so when we speak about total depravity, we don't mean to say that we are as depraved or bad as we possibly could be. Rather, it means that this sin, right, this spiritual virus, sin has deeply affected every aspect of our personhood. It's that pervasive, right? And it has a profound effect upon us. You know, why, why do we get sick and why do people die? What's, what's the answer ultimately? It's because of sin, right? It's the effect of sin over our physical body. Sin has affected the physical realm, therefore we get sick and die. Why do people struggle to define what a man or a woman is these days? What is that about? <laughs> well, that is the combined effect of sin affecting our minds and our intellect and our moral character, you see. Right? Our capacity to clearly think and reason has become darkened as a result of sin. And no one has the courage to stand up anymore because sin has affected their hearts. Sin has affected our emotional lives as well. Right? We should look upon any act of rebellion or disobedience against God as utterly repulsive and disgusting. But guess what? We don't, as you know. We don't. Right? Often, you don't. I'm not saying you never do as Christians, but... We don't often, even as Christians we don't, right? Instead we often shrug our shoulders in apathy or we even choose to delight in sin. Why do we sin? It's because part of us loves, we love sin. Right? We delight in sin. Now in regards to our spiritual capacity, the doctrine of total depravity means that apart from God's grace, it's impossible for us to see God as lovely and beautiful it's impossible for us to then choose to trust and believe that he's good and true, right? So brothers and sisters, I hope you realize how pervasive sin is, how much it has affected us. We are completely unable to trust God apart from his grace, and that is why people, some people have preferred to use the word total inability right, rather than total depravity because it sort of conveys that that message of we are utterly helpless, we are unable, right? Okay, you guys still awake? <laughs> Number two, before God saved us, we were dead, and I wanna emphasize here the, the deadness of our hearts, okay? We were dead in our sin, unable to come to him. I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm not gonna read the whole passage, but just the ones that are bolded, okay? Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 5, and you were injured? No, you were what? Dead in your sins. But, okay, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. It's such a beautiful uh, Truth, it's, it's such good news for all of us. And so a question, there's a question I wanted to have you consider uh, as you reflect upon that. 
okay? If that's your reality, right? Do you think, what do you think? Do, do we have to exercise our free will first by embracing God in order for God to make us alive together with Christ? Is that the order, you think? Or are we made alive first because we're dead, remember? Because we're dead, does God have to make us alive first so that we can embrace God? What makes more sense to you? What has been your experience, you think? You know, Reformed doctrine teaches that we cannot exercise saving faith in our state of deadness. How can dead people make themselves alive? They can't, right? When we're spiritually dead, we hear the gospel and we are unable to respond with an amen. Yes, preacher. We don't do that, right? We don't say, yes, I'm going to joyfully surrender my life and gladly embrace what Jesus has done for me because I love Jesus. We don't, we don't do that when we're spiritually dead. You can't. You're dead. You really have no affection for your Savior. You know, maybe some of you are gonna be on uh, vacation soon. You're gonna go on, on a boat somewhere. Maybe you're going fishing, I don't know, maybe on a cruise, right? Let's say, let's imagine you fall off the boat for whatever reason. Maybe, you, get, you know, you're so depraved, you get drunk, you, you tip over, you fall, okay? okay let's <laughs> you can't swim because you're like drunk. You're, ah, help, 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 ah, I'm, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And then the captain, you know, he, he shows mercy. He's like, oh, that's stupid, you know, <laughs> He throws you a lifesaver. He throws you, hey, catch this. You know, we'll bring you in. And so you're like this, and oh, yeah. And then you swim like five feet, right? You swim like five feet. You, you grab the lifesaver, and then they, they pull you in. And you're saved. You're saved. Thank you. Thank you for showing me mercy. But it's a combination of mercy and, and your effort, right? It was, it was like 50-50 almost, right? Is that your, is that your idea of salvation? Is that how you think God saved you? That he threw a lifesaver to you, right? And it was dependent upon and, and your, your free will effort to kind of get to that lifesaver so that you can be reeled in? Or is it more like you got drunk <laughs> and you fell overboard and you didn't even realize you fell overboard and you're kind of sinking. It's like, oh, this, look, I'm sinking. And then, and then the... The water fills your lungs and, and sharks are surrounding you. My greatest fear in the ocean, sharks. And, and, and you're actually, in, in a span of like two minutes, you're, you're completely dead, okay? You're, you're dead, you're gone, and you, you've sunk into the bottom of the ocean, okay? And no response, okay? And no one from the ship even sees you. <laughs> okay. But God, right? <laughs> but God being rich in mercy, he sees you and he makes you alive and he resurrects you, your body and your soul. Is that the picture of salvation? I believe in the latter. Brothers and sisters, what we need to get better is not some small modification in our behavior, okay? It's not a little tweak here and there in our lifestyle. I don't know about you, but personally, I, I, 
I believe that someone such as Jordan Peterson has a lot of good things to say. And if you, if you read his book, you know, The 12 Rules for Life, I, I believe you would benefit by getting your life in order, right? Especially if you're a young guy. However, let me make it clear. I want to say that our deeper sin problem before God, it cannot be remedied just by following a few, a few good rules and by changing our behavior because what we need is nothing less than a full renovation of the heart and that can only be done by the work of God through his miraculous spirit's work. You understand? Can I get an amen? Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All things have been handed over to me. Think about this. Jesus is speaking. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. There's a special relationship between Father and Son here in the Trinity. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Right? Let that sink in. This is how it was before they revealed themselves to the world, before they revealed themselves to you. No one knew them in any personal way no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So here's the question. Is, is the Son's choice to reveal the Father and the Father's choice to draw certain people to the Son based on our human free will, or is it solely based on God's sovereign choice? Think about that. Second Corinthians 4, three through four, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here's a question. How is it possible for an unbeliever to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ when this powerful being called Satan has blinded their minds? How, you think you're stronger than Satan? You think you can undo Satan's work on your own? based on your puny free will? You think you're strong? I could take down most of you still right, at age 52. Right. Why are you laughing? I could take you down to whoever's laughing. <laughs> Look, the answer is this. Someone who is more powerful than Satan has to undo Satan's work. Who is more powerful? The, the reformed answer, the reformed answer is, God, it has to be him, right? He has to lift the blinds from our eyes and enable us to see him and renovate our hearts so we would embrace him. That work of grace has to be done. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, <laughs> you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is 
What does that mean? It's a spiritual birth, okay? It is spiritual birth. Question, did, did any of you have any control of your first natural birth when you came out of your mommy's tummy? Any, anybody have a Did you choose your parents? Did you determine the date and time you were gonna be born and what kind of family you were gonna be born into? Of course not. We had no, absolutely no control, no say over any of that. Well, if that's the case, what makes us think that our second birth, which is a more miraculous birth, our supernatural birth, is any more manageable, you see? It's not. We're that much dependent upon God is the point. Here's a... Here's one popular worldly perspective that tickles the ears of many today. I hope, I hope, I hope you've had the discernment. I hope you had enough discernment that when you, when, whenever you, you've, you've heard this quote from a movie, in spite of all the dramatic music that flows in the back, background, that you would be able to say, oh, that's wrong, right? That's wrong, right? And here, here's a quote. And, and try to guess Try to think which movies these became popularized by. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure about you, Akila. I gave that away, Akila the Bee. That's one, actually, that's one, one movie. We are all meant to shine as children do. We are born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it's in everyone. What kind of universalism is this, right? And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others by a very well-known author, political figure now, Marion Williamson. And uh, they put this on Akila the Bee to inspire the viewers. Akila, you can win this national spelling bee. You know, look, look at these words here. Think about these. And then Coach Carter, Part of his inspirational speech, Coach Carter, one of uh, probably some of your favorite movies, right? Uh, another thing Marianne Williamson is known for, you committed no sins, just, I thought that, that picture was clever, no? I, I took time to pick, you know, to choose the picture. <laughs> Show some appreciation. <laughs> uh, you committed no sins, just mistakes. Uh, by the way, if you didn't know, Marion Williamson is like a minister. She's like a pastor at a, at a denomination called the Unity Church, and they do not believe that we are born as sinners. They, they believe in the inherent goodness of humanity, right? And so that, her theology, it, it shows in what she says, okay? Um, let's see. I think that's, that's it for slides, Okay. I'm not, I'm not a slide guy normally, so whenever I do slides, I, I expect some, you know, just kidding. Um, let, me, let me conclude by tr trying to speak to your heart a bit, okay? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm gonna do this well today, but I'll try. You know, my, my personal sort of 
journey has been like this. I, when I was younger, my portrait of God was deeply flawed. And you probably, you know, you can, you can relate to that because just our understanding of Scripture is weak and you just kind of like, uh, we, we're very just consumer-oriented. We kind of take in what the culture teaches us and what our peers tell us. Um, and I actually grew up in a Methodist church, and so they rejected any of these kind of doctrines, you know. Um, so I, I never understood uh, or had a robust understanding of God's sovereign grace until later in life. But, you know, early on, the argument of free will, I, I was okay with it. I mean, that, that's the arguments I heard. Uh, until I noticed that these arguments based on free will, they weren't able to explain large chunks of the Bible, including the passages I just presented to you, right? You know, a common refrain that I heard from people in my circle was, look, God loves everyone the same, okay? It sounded good. Uh, God loves everyone the same, okay? And as a young, younger kid, teenager, I had, you know, very little qualms about it. But, you know, it's like, in response to the question, then, then why do some people believe and some don't? The common answer was because of human free will, you see, right? And you heard that probably as well. And then I would object in my mind, then, then why does the Bible say that God loved Jacob and hated Esau? And why does it say that God ordains all things to be? And so it seemed to me that the argument from uh, human free will was just grossly deficient, at best. It answered some things, but it was grossly deficient. And, you know, as a high school kid, you know, you may remember that my, my father passed away when I was the first year in high school, and I had some real questions. I mean, my, my world was rocked, right? So I was, like, really asking serious questions about life and salvation and heaven and hell and all that, and I noticed some leaders in the church in my church at the time, they were beginning to embrace the heretical teaching that said, God is love. <laughs> Even my own cousin would say this, who attended at the time Yonze Divinity School. He was like, God is love. So in the end, it doesn't matter what you believe. In the end, he will forgive everyone because God is love. It was like this, this really twisted universalist teaching. It didn't matter what you believe, what religion, God in the end, because he's love, he will forgive you no matter what. And that's just, even though I had very limited understanding of Scripture, it didn't sit well with me at all. I mean, I didn't know my Bible all that well, but I knew that that kind of teaching was still inconsistent with Scripture. But that's the environment I grew up in. And so I became very confused and cynical as a Christian. And then, uh, by God's grace, I finally met some Calvinists in college, okay? <laughs> and maybe some of you had a, a, maybe a bad experience with Calvinists because they can be, they tend, they tend to be, you know, not as warm or fuzzy or kind initially at least, okay? I'm sorry if I'm perceived to be that way. Um, nine nine o'clock congregation, they kind of chuckled at that comment, by the way. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but I met these Calvinists and yeah, these people were really not into a feel-good-for-everyone gospel. They were willing to grapple with the more difficult texts and say the unpopular things. Right? They wanted to know the truth. They wanted to hear the truth. They wanted to live their lives based on the truth. They weren't perfect, 
but that was her heart orientation. And, and so that's when I began to shift from a man-centered way of thinking toward a more, in my mind, a God-centered or God-honoring way of thinking, okay? And that's, that's when I became exposed to what I believe to be a, a more accurate portrait of God. And my life, my life changed uh, dramatically, I think, as a result, okay? And so some of you, I wanna say, some of you, you need to begin this journey of becoming a more God-centered believer uh, who possesses a deep uh, humility uh, because you now know the depth of your depravity and the grace you need to be saved, okay? Uh, in my discipleship group, I had, I had my guys uh, do some reading to reflect on how our culture has gotten so lost, okay? And so let me read just a, a few lines for you to get, get you thinking about where you might be in this discussion, okay? Uh, let me share just one brief thing. Reading, I quote, formally, if men were miserable, they went to church so as to find the rationale of their misery, right? They did not expect to be happy, right? This idea of, of being happy is Greek, not Christian or Jewish. Such a notion is incomprehensible today because we as Christians intuitively go to church to feel good, right? Now, this quote needs some brief explanation. This here is speaking about feeling good about yourself, right, and who you are. It's talking about our tendency to want to be spoken well of and, and to be told that we are truly worthy of God's love and that we are not failures. And that's the message that people tend to want to hear when they come to church. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that is not the message God has given to us through his word. His message is rather we are depraved and sin has affected us deeply in every possible way. In fact, as I've been saying, our condition is so bad that apart from Christ, we were completely dead, unable to even cry out for help. But the good news is what? But God, right? But God, who was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved, even when we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. So brothers, sisters, we gather to worship, not so that we can make much of ourselves, not so that we can feel good about who we are. No, we gather to worship in order to make much of God because it is only by his grace we are saved from our depravity and sin. Amen? I close with a quote from Jack Miller, who was a reformed Presbyterian pastor. Uh, he was the key figure in developing the curriculum called Sonship, and his son is Paul Miller, who wrote a book on prayer, who's very active also in ministry. Uh, and Tim Keller used to always quote from Jack Miller, right? You may think this is a Tim Keller quote, but it's not, it's a Jack Miller quote, okay? He used to say, cheer up, Christian, cheer up. You know, cheer up, why so sad? Cheer up. You are worse than you think you are. <laughs> you are far worse than you think you are, but, again, good news, Ephesians 2, 
but God's grace is far greater than you could ever imagine. So cheer up, find delight, find joy and satisfaction and hope in God, not yourselves, right? That's where our joy should be anyway, right? Understand? Let's pray together. Dear Father, your grace becomes much more precious to us when we realize the depth of our depravity and Christ is more loved when we see how much we actually need him. And when we understand the human capacity for evil, we become wiser in all areas of life. We become wiser parents, wiser teachers, wiser business professionals, wiser stewards of our government and democracy. And when we generally know that only the grace of God can save us, we become more of a humble people as well, not arrogant or pompous at the thought that we somehow possess greater knowledge but, Father, we become more humble knowing that apart from your grace, we truly have nothing. So as we study these truths, help us to treasure Christ and the grace that flows through him and help us, Lord, to grow in wisdom and humility. For the sake of your glory and fame, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.